Welcome to the Murthy Law Firm Teleconference Series for Employers. Today's topic is consular processing of non-immigrant visas, primarily focusing on the H-1 and H-4 visas at the various consulates, particularly in, with emphasis to India. I am Sheila Murthy, founder and president of the Murthy Law Firm. Today I have with me two of my brilliant, fantastic lawyers from the Murthy Law Firm team, attorney Brian Green, who has several years of uh, litigation experience, has filed a lot of cases for the firm on writs of mandamus. Litigation does a lot, works a lot with audit and investigations clients, which unfortunately has also become a trend with the government. And along with Brian, we have attorney Anna Stepanova, another brilliant person who is part of this great team. Her focus in the special projects department, as she's the attorney coordinating that area, is to focus on more unique complex cases, work on criminal issues, which unfortunately happens to the best of our clients from time to time, but also to focus on student issues because she was a designated school official or DSO with a university before joining, going to law school and becoming an attorney at this incredible firm. So... Again, as I pointed out, our topic is consular processing of non-immigrant visas, H-1s and H-4s, with focus on employers. As many of you are aware, many foreign nationals are applying for such visas like the H's and H-4s, H-1Bs and H-4s, have been experiencing either significant delays or denials of the H-1 and H-4 visa. Usually this starts off with a 221G where the consular officer requests additional information, calls it administrative processing, or it could even end up becoming a visa denial and a referral to the USCIS for revocation of the underlying H-1B or L-1 petition. In many cases, as some of you are aware, the H-1B petition was approved by USCIS recently before the H-1 employee and the family even applied for the H-1 or H-4 visa at the consulate abroad. At the Murthy Law Firm, we've been unfortunately receiving a lot of reports describing horrendous stories and situations where the H-1 employee has not been able to return to the U.S. to continue the employment um, because of the delays or the 221G issuance causing serious destruction and problems for the employer, loss of revenues and business opportunities for the business or the employer. Um, a lot of times it's mid-vendors. It's a lot of times with consulting companies in particular or resulting in separation of family members uh, where somebody thinks I'm going for a two-week vacation and then they get stuck for weeks or months on end. We certainly understand why the consular officers at times may need to ensure that a particular visa applicant, whether it's an H-1B or an H-4, actually is qualified to obtain that particular visa. But in many instances, we have found that the denials or the revocation request to USCIS or the delays are completely unjustified and unfounded. In today's teleconference, we will examine these trends of visa adjudications, which occur all over the world, but we are finding that there's almost a common trend right now in a country like India and Pakistan, Bangladesh, a lot of the developing countries in particular. Um, and we will be hopefully able to guide you so that within the next 30 to 45 minutes, you will have some advice, information, and guidance on how to prepare 
your employee, the H-1B employee or the H-4 family member for the visa interview, what to expect and how to try to overcome the common problems associated with delays. So, Brian, if I can start off with you, what do you find have been the major problems for visa applicants and their employers? Thank you, Sheila. I think the biggest problem right now that most of our listeners probably have heard about is a 221G um, administrative processing delay. And this is where the consular officer presents the applicant with a form that says at the top administrative processing or, or 221G. And there can be a lot of different reasons for this. It could be that they're checking to see if the job being offered is a qualified job for H-1B. They could be checking someone's name to see if they fit in any databases that the you know d- different agencies involved in the federal government might be looking at for security reasons. But the end result is that that person has a temporary denial of the visa, and they have to wait until the Department of State decides that they want to issue the visa, and what used to take 30 days may now take three, four, or five months. So 221Gs, it can take a long time. People get very stressed out by this, and it's an unending delay. You don't know when it's going to be resolved. After that, a lot of H-1B petitions now are being effectively re-reviewed by the Department of State. Instead of just looking at whether the person has the right education, whether they have the qualifications, they're looking at the job and saying, we don't think this is the right job for H-1B. So they're returning the H-1B petition back to the USCIS and saying, look at this for revocation. Once that happens, the visa cannot be approved. The case is transferred back to the U.S., and it takes months and months and months for this to get to resolve. So the, the result is, again, more delay for the visa applicant. They're stuck in India. They're stuck overseas. They're separated from their family and from their employers. The employer loses the employee in the meantime. Maybe someone can work remotely from a foreign country, but it's a huge, huge problem. Another recent uh, development is that the Department of State issued a new regulation allowing them to cancel visas that they think were inappropriately issued originally or if the person is no longer qualified for that visa. So if someone goes over for a second, third H-1B visa issuance and the officer thinks, well, I don't think this is the right H-1B worker, they can go ahead and cancel that person's still valid H-1B. And if there's someone in the country that has an H-4 based on that petition, they can cancel the H-4 visa for the person sitting in California, Texas, Florida, wherever that person is in the world, they can instantaneously cancel a visa that was already approved. This is a huge power that was just created about a month ago. It really almost sounds unlawful and illegal. I guess no one's challenging the government at this point because of concerns. And you also mentioned that there are security advisory opinion delays, the SAO delays. These are standard uh, processes the government has to do when there are certain technologies being um, utilized by a worker, certain educational backgrounds, physics, nuclear, uh, engineering. But those processing, those delays now are stretching longer and longer. And we've heard of one case where someone's SAO took at least a year to get completed. So what used to be three months maybe is taking four times longer. So again, the two by section 214B for the F1 applicants, visa applicants. We're seeing many more denials on 214B. Okay. Thank you, Brian. That's that's helpful. It's unfortunate, but it's helpful so that companies and businesses can understand, like, oh, my God, I thought my F1 OPT went for a two-week vacation. Why are they stuck for three months? Anna, coming to you now, you know, what are the differences, if any, between the different consular posts? How should a person, a candidate, say, which consular post should I actually try to apply for a visa? Thank you, Sheila. This is a very important decision that uh, a person who leaves the U.S. to apply for a visa has to um, has to make. So a lot of these people just call our office and they ask, where should I go? 
remember, whatever decision you make, you need to look at the uh, website for that specific consulate because uh, the bottom line is that they all have, may have different um, specific requirements which you would have to know about before you go there for your, or before you even make your uh, visa uh, appointment. So when you say you, you mean the employees for the company? Yeah, exactly, yes. Thank you for clarifying. That's, the, that's your employee. And um, also you need, uh, your, employee, um, your employees would need to remember that uh, third countries such as Canada and Mexico do not have to accept your employee's visa application. They may say that they're not in the best position to review the uh, uh, specific situation that the person uh, is in, and they can simply reject the visa application. That does not uh, mean that the visa application is denied or refused. It simply means that now um, they would have to travel to their home country for uh, applying for a visa. And the home country is always the uh, best place that can uh, review, especially with regard to clearly non-immigrant visa um, uh, categories such as F or J. Those are the ones where um, the first e visa should probably be um, issued because they're in the best position to judge whether the uh, um, home country is the country that the person intends to go back to once they finish their stay in the U.S. Okay. You, you need to also remember that in Mexico um, now the requirement is that um, third country national applicants may only renew their um, non-immigrant visas, most of the non-immigrant visa classifications such as H, L, J, F, I, O, P, R, M, C1, D, D, and E, those visa classifications may be issued only if the initial visa was issued in the applicant's home country or at one of the U.S. Consulate, uh, consulates um, along the Mexican or Canadian borders. Okay, Anna. Uh, so, you, so basically you're saying uh, the, the home country from which the person is a citizen has to re, re, is required by law to review a properly submitted visa application, even if they end up delaying it or denying it, unlike a third country uh, consulate, which has the discretion based on their workload or based on any other factors to decide not to review it's, it. Yes, that's, that's correct. It's always um, easier to deal with the situation when you are in your home country, as we hear from some people who go to Canada or Mexico, and uh, what they uh, describe as being stuck there because of the administrative processing of 221G, and they have no choice but uh, trying to stay in that third country. Okay, very good. So, so let's, let's try to understand. I know there have been horrendous stories in general, about all of the H-1B consulting companies, about, uh, you know, the misuse of the system, the concern, the right starting from, like, the last, I would say, couple of years as the economy went down, and more specifically, a year and a half ago with the January 8, 2010, when the USCIS issued its memo on the employer-employee relationship, it seems like the target audience for all of the problems are ID consulting companies. So is there any specific advice Brian, that you would give to an H-1B visa applicant, that if I was the employer, what would I give to my H-1B visa applicant 
especially if I, as the employer, am an IT consulting company. And by the way, even though it's targeted to IT consulting, it applies across the board to all employers, even though, unfortunately, IT consulting companies, as many of you are aware, are being given a really hard time. Yeah, thank you, Sheila. I think the best... Um preparation that the employer can give the visa applicant is to prepare the very best H-1B petition in the U.S. possible because the consular officers have a PIM system which gives them copies of everything that the employer files with USCIS and if they are going to re-adjudicate the H-1B at the consulate and look very deeply into that petition all the work that you do in the U.S. is going to benefit you at the consulate or if you don't do as good a job putting together the H-1B petition you're creating problems that will come up at the interview of the visa applicant. So the very best advice is do a fantastic job on the H-1B petition here in the U.S., and that hopefully will reduce the number of potential problems and at the consulate. have the employee actually read that petition. It's something we tell them over and over, but people don't read it because they say that they're doing something that's different than what was written in the H-1 petition. That's like the kiss of death. Absolutely. The employee has to understand exactly what the employer created the job and how the job is described to CIS, but they also need to know details about the end client, the mid-vendors, and if there is an end client involved, there's more than one layer with the uh, consulting situation. The employee has to not only understand who will be managing their work at the end client, what the job details will be, who they're going to report to at the H-1B employer, who the HR person is. Beyond that, they need to have an end client letter that adequately describes the work and has a manager or someone's name and telephone number on that letter because the consul officers are really focusing on the end client documentation at this point. Okay, okay. So so uh, you, I'm not sure if you went through the submitting of the unsigned letters. You want to be really careful about that? We've heard about this. There are some situations where end clients will not give signed letters to H-1B visa applicants, and people get very frustrated by this. But it's a problem if you take an unsigned letter to a consular officer because they may view that as being offered as a true letter from that end client. And without a signature, it's not a valid letter. So, so I think it's a fraudulent document. It's, it's dangerous. You you don't want to do that. You're better off trying to explain why you could not get a letter or if there's a mid-vendor letter or an email that explains the job and the connections, you're better off offering true documents and an explanation than offering something that wasn't signed. Okay, very good, very good. And sometimes an email with an email address is a possibility that sure. could work. And sometimes the consulate will actually email back that officer to verify if it's a legitimate uh, relationship. And sometimes they will go beyond and above that immediate um, supervisor or manager to actually go talk to the HR manager or to the top person in charge of that department. And a few people get very nervous because they are probably violating the company's policies by sending these kinds of letters. Okay, so Anna, can I come to you now and ask you what are the other kinds of advice that we would give to H-1 visa applicants if it's not necessarily an ID consulting company? Sure. Uh, Brian just talked about the importance of submitting, preparing a very good case here in the U.S. And also, Sheila, you mentioned that it's important for the employee to be familiar with the contents of the petition, which now... Uh, triggers the uh, uh, problems where the consular officer would issue requests for additional documents in the form of a 221G letter asking for the job duties, um, the experience, 
the uh, detailed description of the internal project if the uh, petitioner is a direct employer, the beneficiaries, the beneficiaries' role in the project, a detailed market analysis, and uh, even petitioner's income tax returns. If the beneficiary has already worked in the U.S. for the petitioner, then the consular officers almost always try to verify that the uh, employee was uh, really working in the position for which the petition was filed by requesting W-2s, pay stubs, and sometimes uh, check um, bank statements to make sure that the petitioner has paid the applicant the required wage in accordance with the LCA and the petition. Okay. I, um, I think that's really tr tricky and tough because, um, you know, it talks about the beneficiary. Um, you know, the W-2s and the pay stubs are the most common reason that we find for this kind of a problem where a lot of employees get stumped and the visas are denied because the employer did not pay the employee at the appropriate time. Uh, Brian, would, would our advice uh, be different to the employer and the employee if it is a second time or subsequent H-1B applicant, and, and if so, why? A little bit different, Sheila. I think you need to be concerned that you don't go into the visa interview expecting that the H-1B visa is going to be issued. Uh, as you said, times have changed, and the, it's getting harder and harder to have visas issued. So if you've been in the U.S. on your first H-1B, your second H-1B, even on extensions for green card, and you're in your sixth, seventh year, if you go back for an H-1B visa, a consular officer is more than likely still going to interview you and, as Anna just said, look into the details of those job and the beneficiary's qualifications. So first, I'd, I'd recommend that you take it very seriously. You have all the paperwork we just described, but what the second or third applicant is looking at is a, a longer history of employment, and that's more room for the consular officer to ask questions about whether the person was paid properly, and especially work locations. If someone had an H-1B filed for the headquarters, shall we say, and it might be California, it might be New Jersey, if that person subsequently worked at end client sites around the U.S., if there were not H-1B petitions that were filed for new locations, the USCIS and the Department of State are taking a different position than they used to, they may say, they may ask questions to the visa applicant about where they worked at, did they have a labor condition application for that work location. They may look very deeply into the job, the locations, the pay, the job duties, and if they find any differences between the old petition, the new H-1B petition in PIMS, they could deny the visa for that reason, or they could just put you on 221G, administrative delay, possibly send an investigator out to the end client to see if the person was working there. They can look at a lot of different details. It could take a long, long time. I see. Well, it certainly is pretty scary because most companies and individuals are often shocked or used to be a couple years ago when it was a second or third re renewal, and they would think that it's a matter of course, that of course I've applied for the visa two or three times, and I've always received the H-1 or the H-4 or the L-1. L2, and now why is it suddenly getting denied, or why am I stuck? So understanding that we are in a completely new climate and a different mindset, I think, will really help you as the employer and the employee. So, Anna, are there any other best practices that the company could consider or review? Sure, absolutely, and we do assist those companies with reviewing the H-1B petition, which is very important if your employee should uh, needs to travel, just to make sure that the petition still reflects the job as it exists. If an amended petition needs to be filed, then 
file it. That's our advice. It needs to be filed to reflect the correct location, the salary, the prevailing wage, and other important information. Any discrepancies between USCIS records and the workers' documents and statements at the H-1B visa interview can lead to a visa denial and possible revocation of any still valid visas that Brian just talked about uh, in his opening question and answer. So it's important to prevent um, any of these problems, and it's possible to prevent any of these problems by reviewing the H-1B job and submitting an amended petition, obtaining an approval before the employee has to travel. Okay, and again, the huge importance or the benefit is if the H-1 petition was recently approved like an amendment, then it's usually a much better argument to say, hey, consular officer, you cannot delay or deny this H-1 visa or H-4 visa because USCIS very recently approved this petition, so all of this has been recently blessed, and your job is simply to verify that I am not lying about my work experience or my education. So it actually strengthens the application. Okay, so what are the kinds of the most commonly asked visa interview questions that are often asked of these candidates? Brian and Anna, what I'll do is have Brian maybe speak to a few, and then Anna will ask you for a few so we can have a discussion maybe about analyzing some of those. Sure. The, the first question you're often going to get is, why do you want to go to the U.S.? The consular officers want to know, ask, ask the visa applicant specifically, what's your purpose in going to the U.S.? Once they get past that, they're often going to ask questions about the employer and the relationship between the petitioner, the H-1B company, the employer, and the beneficiary, the applicant for the visa. And particularly the last maybe two years or so, they're asking questions like, did you pay any money to the employer to have your H-1B petition filed for you? Did you pay any money to a recruiter in India or some other country before you were sponsored? And they will also ask details about the job, the role, the title for your position. And then they'll dig a little deeper and start asking questions about, do you know the number of employees at your H-1B company? Do you know the name of the project you're working on? And do you know the number of employees who will be working on that project? So if you're a first-time H-1B applicant, you may not know these details. And the employer needs to definitely prepare the person, as Anna and Sheila have said. If you're a returning uh, H-1B visa applicant, you need to make sure that you're up-to-date on your information when you leave the U.S. So when you go to the consular interview, you are prepared with the best, latest information. Okay, that's helpful, Brian. And now, Anna, give me, I know there's a lot of questions there asked. There are more questions, uh, of course. There are other common questions would include the question, what the salary is? How, how much are you making? When did you graduate? What is your qualification? Remember that consular officers are looking for information that will make your case questionable. And if there is any discrepancy between what they know about your case and what, uh, what uh, the visa applicant uh, tells them, then that, that, that can question the whole validity of the job. Uh, additionally, if um, you are moving from one job to another, why and when did you move? What is, uh, was the hiring selection procedure? Have you met the person who interviewed you? If the education work experience does not match the job position, offered, then justify your qualification, how you got the job. All of these questions are relevant and commonly asked during the interview. Okay. Okay. It's unfortunate. It almost feels like I'm being grilled, 
uh, in order with something that I thought I had already approved, uh, received an approved petition, and I'm clearly qualified, and I did all the right things. So, Brian, I know earlier we had talked a little bit about the SAO, the security advisory opinions, and we had talked about that some visa applica applications actually re require the issuance of an SAO. Uh, can you describe what it is and why some are subject to it and others are not? An SAO is a process that the, the State Department uses to double-check on whether someone is a danger to come into the U.S. or whether there's a danger that certain technology or um, national defense projects would be involved in a, in a worker's job. So if someone has a certain educational background, if they have previously handled technology that is of concern to the U.S. government, then they have additional process they have to go through, and the consular officer will actually order an SAOBC sent, and that's a request sent by the U.S. consulate back to the State Department. The U.S. State Department looks at the case and then responds back to the consulate with a yes or no. You can go ahead and approve this person for the visa, or no, you have to deny this person a visa. So it often depends on either the person's experience, their education, or based on the type of work that they're doing, especially national defense projects or certain industries which are sensitive to U.S. government, um, the person has to know that they may take longer in the, in the foreign country to get their visa issued to them because their, their work involves or their background involves these particular industries or, or technologies. So they need to plan ahead and allow more time because just like a 221G, an SAO can take months to have resolved. And we've heard of one case where it took up to one year for the SAO to be uh, cleared by State Department, and that person was waiting for 11 and a half months outside the U.S. So it was a very long, stressful process. Aha, uh -huh. this almost sounds very similar to the U.S. Department of Commerce requirements for what they call the license, um, because you're licensing technology to the foreign national because you need the export control license, as we call these. these. So it's similar, but it's different because you're talking more about security advisory opinions as opposed to a Department of Commerce export control license issue. And it's, it's interesting and see their layers. So besides that, you also have this other issue uh, that comes up. Um, and I know we've discussed it a lot, the uh, entire export control issue, but it's, di it's different, but it's similar in the sense both are separate processes that require blessings from different federal government agencies in order to pros process and proceed with the visa application. So, so Anna, what options would we be able to suggest for someone with the 221G request who would like to pursue other options, for example such as coming to the United States maybe on an H-4 or L-2 dependent visa, or maybe to work with a completely different employer because they feel, hey, I have a direct relationship, I don't have to go through the consulting company, or some other reason that they would, they, that they would want to contact and, and discuss with us. This is a very common question, Sheila. People come, uh, call us and say, well, I'm stuck in the 221 limbo, my case uh, is being administratively processed. What can I do? My spouse is in the U.S. I am outside of the U.S. I don't have any other means of coming to the U.S. to join my family. My, I'm losing my employment. People find themselves in these frustrating situations all the time. So what can they do? If their spouse is in H-1B status in the U.S., what they can do is to withdraw, ideally, their application for H-1B visa and apply for an H-4 visa. 
In that case, consular officers would generally expect these visa applicants to withdraw the application for the H-1B visa. Then one can carry the letter requesting withdrawal of the H-1B and present it to the officer. Just of the visa application, not of the petition or anything else. No, 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 no. Just that, that's, Im that's important to clarify. Mm -hmm. that's, that's a good uh, way to describe it. Yes, that's only the H-1B visa application that the applicant is trying to requesting to withdraw. They would have to, unfortunately, pay the visa fees again because they will be filing a new visa application and they will schedule a new appointment for the H-4 visa. We have a number of clients and people who call us who successfully obtain an H-4 visa after they were unable to successfully obtain an H-1B visa. It's possible to request continuing process for the H-1B visa, but apparently uh, from what we understand, it's not working as well as re, uh, requesting to withdraw the H-1B and applying for uh, filing an application for the H-4. If the H-1B visa applicant has a new employer who filed a new H-1B petition and obtained an approval, it's also possible to apply for a new H-1B visa. In that case, the applicant will have to schedule a new appointment. They simply will have to request to withdraw this, uh, the current H-1B applica visa application and uh, request a new appointment on the new approved petition. Okay, so, so just to understand, if the person comes in on the H-4 dependent family visa, either Brian or Ioana could explain, what, would the person then be able to, for example, just simply work with the original H-1 employer since that petition was not revoked if they come back or would they need to do something else? <clears throat> Generally, the petition, the new petition will have to be filed because they will be admitted in H-4 status. So we could just do a simple amendment, amend it back for the previous H-1, back to just change status back from H-4 to H-1 Possibly, the but the employer will have to file a new form I-129. For the to obtain a new I-94. In order to obtain the change of I-94, change of status. Right. Okay, so let's look at some of the special issues that we've talked about. I know Brian, Anna, myself have been discussing this, which many of you as employers are concerned with. I know IT consulting companies have been more uh, directly impacted by all of the delays and de denials of H visas and L visas for IT companies in particular. But stuff that we see, the issues are availability of the client contract. The client letter is increasingly important, as Brian had mentioned earlier. It is best to carry the original letter, if at all possible, from the client on the company's letterhead. There's also been benching issues, as we've seen, for some employees, and this obviously will cause a potential problem at the time of the visa application at the consulate, because um, full salary as required under the LCA and the H-1B petition is required to show the employer's ability to pay, to show that there's a bona fide employer-employee relationship, and to show the, uh, uh, that there is a genuine job offer available. Um, previously, benching did not seem to be a problem, though it's always been in violation of the rules, but now they're focusing on it with great attention. Uh, partially because of the economy and partially because of the memo and the difference in climate. Uh, Brian had mentioned PIMS, the Petition Information Management System. Those verification delays uh, f 
at the consulates and at the embassy could end up taking another couple of weeks, but it's usually not terribly wrong, long in most cases. And uh, as we've talked before, we've talked about the administrative processing delays under 221G, which could take up to 10 weeks or longer. So it, as the employer and the employee, you would be better prepared to carry all the documents to be aware of potential 221G issues and, you know, mentally go over, maybe role play, how an interview is going to happen and how to overcome the problems. Uh, Brian, uh, can you think of anything else? Sure. Uh, one of the common problems that we see is where someone has tried to change status in the U.S. and asked the USCIS to give them an I-94 card in a different category. If that is denied and the person doesn't leave immediately, say they take one week, two week to get their travel arrangements together, they go to the consulate. They have technically been out of status in the United States, and when they fill out the DS-160 online application for the visa at the consulate or embassy abroad, they have to truthfully declare that they were out of status. So it gets a little tricky, but when you come to the question on the DS-160 about whether or not you have violated this, the terms of a U.S. visa or been unlawfully present, you probably have not been unlawfully present, but you have violated the terms of a visa because you have to leave by a certain date. The I-94 card has a certain date on it. You were denied the change of status. So you have to check off yes on that portion of the DS-160, but the form does allow you to explain your answer, and you need to have an explanation ready for that. And when you get to the visa interview, you need to be able to explain to the consular officer that you knew you had to leave the country, that you were getting your plane ticket together. You have to be able to have a truthful, a reasonable explanation for the officer. And then if they hear that, they may forgive that short duration and still approve the visa. Right. And in a lot of cases, if the I-94 card expired, the new extension of the change of status was denied. There is unlawful presence once that's denied from the date of the denial till you leave the country. But as long as we can explain that, hey, I tried to leave, as Brian just pointed out very quickly, even if there was unlawful presence, you didn't stay, as Brian just pointed out, beyond the 180 days, it's probably okay. And there's no three-year or 10-year bar in returning back to the United States. Anna, anything else that you'd like to add? Just adding to what uh, you and Brian just discussed. In that case, you have to apply for your visa uh, in your home country. If you overstay, you no longer have an option to go to a third country and apply for a visa there. You simply have to travel all the way to your home country and apply there. In addition, one concerning trend that we've been seeing, noticing here in the law firm, uh, H-4 spouses and children have been denied visas when consular officers were determining or made a determination that there was something wrong with the underlying H-1B petition. Even in cases where the H-1B employee obtained their visa maybe two or three months, just shortly before H-4 family members applied for their H-4 visas, uh, they obtained their visas successfully. The same consulate post can review, again, the H-1B petition and make a determination that the uh, job does not exist as described in the H-1B uh, petition. Beware of those situations, and good advice is for H-4 family members to anticipate that the consular officer would have the same type of questions about the H-1B employment so that they would need to prepare 
for the trip exactly in the same manner as an H-1B worker would and uh, the, their visa application according to these guidelines. Okay. Well, I mean, you can clearly see that there's a whole different change in attitude in the way H-1, H-4, L-1, L-2, and other non-immigrant visas are being routinely uh, delayed or denied at consular posts around the world. Um, it's clearly very troubling. Some of it is questionably outside of what is legally permissible, but many employers and employees are hesitant to challenge the U.S. government to file a lawsuit, to question the government's authority. Uh, and it is much more difficult at a consulate because, in general, there's the principle or doctrine of consular non-reviewability, where consular officers' actions outside of the United States are subject to a very, very high standard uh, where you have to show that they were grossful indifference, grossful, willful disregard, very, very high, difficult standards to overcome. And so companies and employers say, you know what, I'm just going to file a new petition or let the employee file a new with a new employer, find other options. So for you as an employer, you need to figure out how you can deal with the situation, how to respond, how valuable the employee is. Do you have another related entity or company that you could have this person directly work with and how to overcome it so that in the end we can try to turn what's clearly an undesirable situation into a win-win if it's at all possible. Again, on behalf of Brian Green, Anna Stepanova, myself, and the entire Murthy Law Firm team, we're delighted and honored that you could join us for today's teleconference on this very important topic of visa denials and delays at consular posts worldwide. Um, as I said, in this economic climate, it's better to be safe than to be sorry. Prepare yourselves and your candidates as thoroughly as possible. We at the Murthy Law Firm would be honored to help to guide you and advise you. Should there be a problem anywhere, please don't hesitate to contact us by email or by phone. One of our wonderful attorneys will be able to guide you. Thank you again, and until next month, have a wonderful summer. Bye now.